Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Coming up in this episode of The Box of Oddities, a guy who claims he accidentally time-traveled in 1895 and then accurately predicted the smartphone in 1926. Also, how did mouthwash lead to one of the busiest airports in the United States? The Box of Oddities. If it's weird, we talk about it. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Oh no. What's the matter? Oh, I just got a text. It seems very serious. Oh? Uh, apparently, my Netflix subscription is on Hoid. <laughs> Until I click this link. Let me guess. This is a text that you got, and the uh, sender is just a nonsensical stream of numbers and letters. Yep, at AOL.com. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, at AOL. Wow. Yeah. That's weird that Netflix is telling you that your account is on hoid by using an AOL account. I thought so, but weird. I'm going to click the link anyway. I oh, think well. it's just good for safety's sake. Sure, you want to be you want to be certain that your account's not on hoid. <laughs> <laughs> good Lord. We've had an increased frequency in those types of texts and emails lately it's i don't know what's going on and i just saw like two days ago that the fcc has apparently cracked down on those so good news Mm. maybe it has to do with us traveling abroad oh maybe we were using our phones in other places around the world maybe they were more vulnerable to i don't know i don't understand how that works i'm just concerned that we can't watch netflix because it's on hoid (laughs) well Nikola Tesla was an interesting guy. That just sounds like the beginning of a Monty Python song. Nikola Tesla was an interesting guy. <laughs> Emmanuel Kant was a real pisser. Right, head. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Nikola Tesla, of course, he was an inventor, an electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, and a futurist. And he's well known for a lot of major discoveries and inventions, not the least of which his contributions to the design of the modern AC alternating current electrical supply system. This is my face looking concerned. Why is that? Haven't you already talked about Nikola Tesla? 
I've talked about some things about Nikola Tesla. We're going to do a little bit uh, deeper dive. Some of the weird and fascinating things about Tesla. And I think you're referring to the story that I, I touched on many, many episodes ago about how he, how Tesla made Mark, Mark Twain, Twain poop in poop his, his pants. pants. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. He and Twain were good friends and Tesla loved Twain's work. And in turn, Twain was fascinated with technology and uh, Tesla's drive for discovery. So consequently, Twain spent a lot of time at Tesla's lab in, uh, in Manhattan. At the time that this, this happened, I think he was working on forms of naturally occurring and more efficient electrical sources. And as part of his research, he had just constructed a machine that's, that simulated earthquakes. It was essentially a, a frequency oscillator. He had just tested it and it shook the whole building that right. he was in. So Twain's visiting him like the next day and he was complaining to Tesla that he was suffering from uh, chronic digestive problems. And so Tesla told him that he was he was able to cure it if he stood on in the middle of this oscillator and then he turned it on <laughs> and uh, Twain proceeded to fudge his linens before he could reach the bathroom. Even a genius and far seeing futurist like Tesla enjoys bathroom humor. But there were many other things that he did as well that were equally as strange. And even though Tesla was recognized as a genius, it's stuff like that that made people think that maybe he was a little bit crazy. And according to Professor Michael Fitzgerald and Brandon O'Brien, who co-authored a book, How Asperger Talent Changed the World, Tesla, they say, today would probably be diagnosed on the spectrum somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He also suffered from obsessive compulsive syndrome. He hated jewelry, he hated round objects, and he hated the way that hair felt. Oh, those yeah. are very specific things. Very specific and things. And it does sound similar to the, the things that my friends who are on the spectrum, mm -hmm. and maybe a little more so, mm -hmm. have aversions to. Mm -hmm. And he also was obsessed with the number three. I think I touched on that in another episode, mm. too. Um, also, any number that was divisible by three, he washed his hands three times in a row when he would wash. Uh, when he would come home at night, he wouldn't just go into the building. He had to walk around the block three times before he entered the building. And while he was eating, he used 18, divisible by three, of course, handkerchiefs to wipe down his cutlery in the table before every meal. Oh my God, that's so much laundry. Once the cutlery was clean and he began to eat, he would put on white gloves. Mm -hmm. This was every meal. And uh, then he would pick up a fork full of food. But before he ate it, he'd uh, study it and calculate the volume of the food on his fork. And he said if he did not do that, then he felt no pleasure while eating. Oh, that must be exhausting. I would think so. Because of these unusual practices surrounding his meals, he preferred to, to take, take his meals alone. Sure. Um, he also believed that he could communicate with pigeons. What? Yeah. He, I know he, he had a favorite pigeon, right? Yeah, he did. It was, it was a white pigeon. He called it a white dove. And uh, he claimed that he could summon the, the dove just by thinking about it, and it would show up on his windowsill. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, he met it one time in the park, and it apparently had a broken wing or leg or something, and he spent $2,000 of his own money. This would have been in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. To nurse this uh, pigeon back to health and Aww. to feed it. 
as one should. But there were many unusual things about Tesla. In 1901, he made an astonishing claim that he was receiving radio communications from the planet Mars. The Richmond Times wrote an article, and in it they said, quote, and this is pretty flowery. I like the way this person writes. As he sat beside his instrument on the hillside in Colorado, in the deep silence of that inspiring region where you plant your feet in gold and your head brushes the constellations. As he sat there one evening alone, his attention exquisitely alive at that juncture was arrested by a faint sound from the receiver. Three fairy taps, one after the other, at a fixed interval. What man who has ever lived on earth would not envy Tesla at that moment? And this became a huge story in the mm. press, of course. But it, uh, it got little or no serious interest from scientists. Again, they portrayed him as a person with one foot off the curb at all times. But then there were things he did that people thought were crazy at the time that uh, over the decades have proven to be frighteningly accurate. Like washing his hands? <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> as it turns out. In an interview with John B. Kennedy, Tesla Tesla, who was working on wireless energy at the time, described how one day his invention would help give us long-distance wireless communication. And this was in 1926. He said, quote, When wireless is perfectly applied, the whole earth will be converted into a huge brain, which in fact it is, all things being particles real and rhythmical. We shall be able to communicate with one another instantly irrespective of distance. Not only this, but through television and telephony, we shall see and hear one another as perfectly as though they were face to face, despite intervening distances of thousands of miles. And the instruments through which we shall be able to do this will be amazingly simple compared to our present day telephone. A man will be able to carry one of these devices in his vest pocket. Clearly, Tesla overestimated the popularity of vests in the future, but uh, he was dead on with the smartphone. Well, you just straight up stole my vest joke. The vest thing? Yeah. Um, great minds. I heard I heard you say that sentence, and I was like, I'm going to go for that vest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like, ha ha, yeah. ha ha, smart guy, didn't know about vests, right? And then you're all like, clearly, he overestimated, <laughs> he, he ruined it. Yeah. He predicted lots of other things, too, that came to be. At the time, he predicted them seemed like science fiction, MRI cameras, for one, and also Wi-Fi. And rumor is that he developed what was referred to as a death ray oh. that would potentially, in his words, stop all future wars. And the story goes that after his death, the FBI seized those documents. Of course, they deny those allegations. Of course. It said that Tesla had a photographic memory and an extremely vivid imagination. As a child, apparently he was prone to nightmares. And so to calm himself down after he would wake up from one of these nightmares, he would use his imagination and he did it consistently. And I guess it's like using a muscle. The more you use it, the better and the stronger it gets. By the time he was an adult, he could visualize in his mind in three dimensions. He could memorize entire books. He could visualize inventions in his mind before they were even created. He called it um, cerebral engineering. 
He could see the whole thing in his head, completely invented, as if it was projected there from an external source, already created. Wow. He could even run tests in his mind on the devices to see if they worked, and if they didn't, he would just make mental adjustments and test them in his head again until they did. That's incredible. In fact, he visualized his invention of the electric motor while taking a stroll in a park in Budapest. Oh. He was reciting from memory part one of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Faust, as one does when strolling in a park in Budapest. And suddenly, in his brain, fully formed was the image of a rotating magnetic field that became the electric motor. He stopped his walk and he knelt down on the ground and drew the diagram in the sand. He then went and got some paper and ink and transferred it to to paper. But that's the way his, his mind worked. He referred to his mind as, quote, the unfathomable mystery. Now, when he was young, his brother, Dane, died unexpectedly. And uh, this led Tesla to become interested in mysticism. And the death of his brother certainly influenced his behavior. Well, mysticism was a huge thing at that period, too. Spiritualism. Just about anyone. Especially, it seems like it was very high society Mm -hmm. to be into mysticism and and spiritualism. Yeah, seances were all the rage in those days. Right, just have a seance, put a pineapple in the middle of your table. Oh, it was a big deal. Now, he's actually a good example of visualizing and bringing things into the material world through thought. He would have visions, and he would make those visions a reality. After the death of his brother, he had vivid recurring visions of fire in the air all around him. And we've seen the iconic picture of him taken decades later sitting in a chair with Tesla coils firing lightning bolts all around him. He saw that vision in his head decades before he invented Tesla coils. And then there was this incident. It happened on March 13th, 1895 where he claims that he accidentally time-traveled, as one does. (laughs) He had just discovered the rotating magnetic field, and he was working on the transformer. This again, 1895. Later that day, a reporter for the New York Herald bumped into him at a restaurant, and Tesla appeared pretty shaken up, frightened, in fact. He claimed to have been hit with 3.5 million volts of electricity. He said, quote, I don't think you'll find me a pleasant companion tonight. The fact is, I almost died today. The spark jumped three feet in the air and caught me here on my right shoulder. If my assistant hadn't turned the power off instantly, it could have been the end for me. He then went on to say, when the electromagnetic charged resonance made contact with him, he claims that he found himself instantaneously outside of time-space. He said he was able to view not only the present, but the present, the past, and the future all at the same time. Now, we all know the three dimensions of space as left, right, up, down, back, and forth. He referred to this as the three dimensions of time. Okay. Which I love that idea. How would he even perceive that and know how to relay it to someone? It's a great question. It said he felt that this discovery was so far ahead of its time, at least that of his contemporary society, that they weren't ready for it. And so he didn't pursue it. 
he thought it would be a danger to society that they could not handle it. Well, that's very responsible, especially for someone who's so science-minded. Yeah. You know, you w- just want to see. In fact, he often said he didn't um, design and create things for money. That was never his goal. His goal was to just discover things. But that's not the only thing that he invented that he, he said was far too advanced for society at the time. He developed blueprints for a spaceship engine Ooh. before his death in 1943. He referred to it as drive space or the anti-electromagnetic field drive. He said, quote, the world is not ready for this. It is something far beyond our time, but the laws will prevail, and one day they will be a triumphant success. And it's been said that most of his papers involving those discoveries and others were seized by the government after he died. Okay. And a popular urban legend is that the research and discoveries involving this time travel project or experiment were used by the government in the 40s, in the 1940s, in a project that we now refer to as the Philadelphia Experiment. Interesting. And that's a whole other topic that deserves its own episode. I, yeah. I can't believe I haven't done one on that yet. When the U.S. government allegedly, in the process of trying to make a battleship invisible, Using electromagnetic warping of space, they sent the SS Philadelphia into the future. Allegedly, that's that's what happened. Allegedly. Allegedly. And it's interesting that this happened shortly after, allegedly happened shortly after uh, Tesla passed away mm. and his papers were allegedly seized. As the saying goes, there is a fine line between genius and and insanity. If there ever was an example of that, it would be Nikola Tesla. There's no doubt that the man was a genius, but there's also little doubt that he dealt with some mental health issues. Right. And perhaps that was his superpower. My resource information, Medium Magazine, Wikipedia, Mysteries Unsolved, and Discovery Magazine. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle.
Charles Whitman was a perfectly normal man until he woke up on July 31, 1966. He discovered he had an uncontrollable urge to kill. Soon after, he killed 14 people, including his wife and mother. In his autopsy, it was revealed that a brain tumor was pushing on his amygdala, and that caused him to have murderous thoughts. It might be the only record of a brain tumor causing a person to become a serial killer. You're going to love this email. Uh, it comes from Derek. Hi, Cat. Hi, JG. I'm writing this email while sitting here in a chair outside the HR office at work. Why, you might ask? Well, let me tell you. Often I like to say quotes from the episodes like, I hope Bill Murray is having a great day, or whenever someone brings me something or needs to tell me something, I say, what you got for me? Mm-hmm. Or when a friend roasts me, I tell him to eat a bag of dicks. Sure. So why was I sent to HR? At my work, where we ship packages, won't say where to avoid another HR meeting, we have someone that reports how many items are going down the belt to help the others prepare for a lot of packages or just a few. Today, that was me doing the counting. We like to tease each other, family-friendly teasing, of course, of course, when we have a lot of packages coming down the belt. Over the radios, this was the conversation. Me. There's about 130 packages coming down. Coworker number one. Oh boy, that's a lot. Coworker number two. It's going to get worse. Coworker number one. How much worse? Me. Prepare your pork taint. <laughs> the second that left my word hole, I knew I'd be in trouble. <laughs> hope you two and Bill Murray are having a great day. With love, Derek. Thanks hope, so much. <laughs> I hope, Derek, that your meeting with HR went well and that you didn't tell them to eat a bag of dicks. Tracy sent us a message. I started listening to random episodes about a year ago until last month when I decided to start from episode number one. Thank you, Tracy. <laughs> Today, I finished the last episode, all 500 plus. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Also, I wanted to comment on one's hair turning white overnight. This happened to my dad. He was an engineer in a logging camp here on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, the best place to live. They were moving his telescoping spar pole to a new location on the mountainside. This is the huge machine that hauls the logs up the side of the mountain. The stabilizer sunk into the soft turf and the machine toppled over, Ooh. narrowly missing my dad by Ooh. six feet. Ooh. He went to bed with a red head and woke up with a head full of white hair. No kidding. Thank you for many hours of entertainment. Mr. Tracy Sesford, Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, eh? That was Buterus's nutsing, as my French-Canadian brother-in-law says. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. 
Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science and You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. Do you know who the first president to fly was? First president to fly. I'm going to say Hoover. No, Um, but I bet your second guess would be right. Wilson. No. God damn, I really thought you were going to be. Coolidge? Uh Uh-uh. I'm very disappointed right now. Teddy Roosevelt. There you go. I thought just because of his nature, you would you would figure that out. But I was I was going by time frame. Okay, when was air travel more available to people other than the Wright brothers (laughs) and a few select other inventors? I absolutely understand. It was 1910. Mm. And Theodore Roosevelt became the first U.S. president to take to the skies. He was with pilot Arch Hoxie in Hoxie's Wright Type AB. They took off from the airport in St. Louis, Missouri, called Kinlock Field. You might not be familiar with that airport as it expanded years later and was renamed Lambert St. Louis Flying Field. That, that is really early in the history of aviation. Yeah, That's only seven years after the Wright brothers' first successful flight in Kitty Hawk. That's incredible. Yeah, and and you can just see Teddy Roosevelt being like, Bullet! 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 I'm going to get on this plane. Look at my pants. (laughs) I'm sporting a pith helmet for no reason at all. I don't know why I envisioned Teddy Roosevelt speaking with a mid-Atlantic accent, but he probably did. I do too, and always wearing a pith helmet. And pants. Yeah, but they're they're snug through the hips and thighs and only go down to mid-calf where his boots start. Kind of like a riding outfit. He wears a little bit of a riding pant. Yeah, very equestrian inspired. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where's my mustache cream? Bully. My swimsuit has stripes. And I'm wearing a straw hat. He can't wear a straw hat, in it? Anyway, so Theodore Roosevelt, he, he's flying. Um... And you, as I said, the airport has since changed names, but that's the, the place where he initially started the, the flying of presidents was at Kinlock Field. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to zig a little bit, and we're going to talk about Albert Bond Lambert. Albert initially studied at the University of Virginia, and he became president of the family Listerine business in 1896. His father was Joseph, and he created Listerine mouthwash. 
and paid homage to Dr. Joseph Lister, the surgeon that pioneered antiseptic surgical methods, leading to, you know, less people dying from gross shit. And so... (laughs) I think it says that right on his tombstone. That's his epitaph. (laughs) Right, yeah. So the family's doing pretty well. And Albert had the time to explore some things he was interested in. He played football, and he was a fine golfer. When he was in Paris, he decided he was going to try out for the Olympics. So he did. Bully. Yeah, he competed at the 1900 Summer Olympics in Paris. Wow. And four years later, he was part of the American team, which won the silver medal, making Lambert the only golfer to have competed in both Olympic golf tournaments. And, you know, he did pretty well. Yeah, I'd say. Especially considering he was just like... Yeah, I'll give this a shot. (laughs) Albert was also a huge fan of innovation and forward movement in technology. Reading about him, I kind of got like Disney vibes. Okay, okay. He contributed to the Louisiana Purchase Exposition of 1904, informally known as the St. Louis World's Fair. And you know, World's Fairs were all about what was new, what was next, all that business. Very Tesla stuff. In 1906... He became interested in aviation and took ballooning lessons. In 1907, he was one of the founders of the Aero Club of St. Louis. The club used military titles, so Lambert's title was then Major Lambert, which I don't think is fair. Like, if I was in a board game club, does Mm -hmm. that mean I would then be Colonel Walls? I don't think Mm -hmm. that's how that works, though there is a Colonel Mustard. Well, people actually use major as a name you know major garrett that news guy right example that's not a a military title it's just his name right dr seuss his real name was what theodore Theodore geisel geisel or something looked like giselle yeah something like that he just uh changed his professional first name to doctor wasn't a degree he had or right i just yeah i understand what you're saying i don't know Anyway, eventually, Albert met the Wright brothers and purchased his first airplane from them because he was the heir to Listerine and had money. Money. Then he took flying lessons from Orville Wright because he had real money (laughs) and eventually got his pilot's license. He was actually the first person in St. Louis to get his pilot's license. That's amazing. It's so cool. The Listerine guy. Right? Albert became a champion of military preparedness as an officer of the Navy League. He served in the aviation sector of the U.S. Army Signal Corps. During World War I, the Signal Corps was responsible for communications, and he was an instructor in ballooning and parachuting. So this guy was all over the place. He was like, I'm interested in this and that and this and that. Boop, 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 boop. This is where we get back to Kinlock Field. Kinlock Field, Kinlock, Missouri. It was a 170-acre field, and it started in 1909 when the Aero Club of St. Louis created a balloon launching base called the Permanent Aviation Field and Dirigible Harbor. It's a fun word. I wish we used it more. Dirigible? Yeah. Now, the club's lease on the land ended in 1912. That's not a thing. In 1912, and the field was closed until... June 1920, when a nearby field was leased to the Missouri Aeronautical Society, which named the facility the St. Louis Flying Field. And among the society's leading members was Albert Bond Lambert. Albert worked so hard to promote aviation in St. Louis. 
So hard, in fact, that in 1923, the field was renamed Lambert St. Louis Flying Field. That was what year? 1923. Wow. So he's still alive and well and was able to enjoy that uh, honor? Yeah. He enjoyed it so much he bought the field. Oh, he did? Yeah. Okay. For $68,000. Wow. Again, money. He developed the field with runways and hangars because he didn't think that the city's current official airport was good enough. So he was like, all right, you know what? I think I have this vision for an airport, and it looks like this, and so I'm just going to make it. In the late 1920s, the airport became the first one with an air traffic control system. It communicated with pilots by way of, like, waving flags. It wasn't, you know, anything Tesla-esque. And the field was used for hot air balloon ascensions and the first international air meet. It was also where Albert organized the first national balloon race. Now... Right around this time, there was another guy who was flying about quite a bit, and his name was Lindbergh. And he was a resident in St. Louis. As he's making his way, being an airmail pilot, flying mail between St. Louis and Chicago, he reached out to Albert and was like, this is what I want to do. It's like this transatlantic thing. Mm -hmm. It's going to be totally chill. You're going to love it. And so... Albert became a backer of Charles Lindbergh's purchasing of the Spirit of St. Louis, and he encouraged eight of his business associates to provide the complete financing of the transatlantic journey. That's incredible. I hadn't thought about that, but it makes sense. Of course, that was a privately funded event. Yeah, by people who were way into aviation. If he had done that today, the uh, airplane would have been called the Spirit of Listerine, you know, the corporate sponsorships. Absolutely. The following year, it's 1928, and Lambert sold the field back to the city of St. Louis, allegedly for the same price that he paid for it before making all those improvements. Wow. It was a real gift to the city, making it one of the first municipally owned airports in the United States. And in 1930, the airport was officially christened Lambert St. Louis Municipal Airport. It's the primary commercial airport serving the metropolitan St. Louis, Missouri area. It's commonly referred to as Lambert. It's the largest and busiest airport in the state of Missouri and one of the top 35 busiest airports in the United States. And it's all because little Albert Fresh Breath had a dream. (laughs) Now, I want to give a shout out to Davey on TikTok who sent me this topic idea, but it was a much more broad topic and I really I found this guy and I was like you know what Albert's worth talking about on his own and the fact that this field was the same place where Theodore Roosevelt had his first flight and he was so involved in so much and I think it's so interesting how many things he touched. The king of Spain stayed at his house one time and the fireplace is still in the house and it was a gift from the king of Spain and it was for sale a couple years ago and I saw the listing and it's absolutely gorgeous and you should look it up. Do you remember the listing price for the home? I think it was around $3 million. Oh, okay. It's two Hortense Place in St. Louis. Bet there's some ghosts in there. Oh, man. Did I say the King of Spain? Yeah. I just checked. It's the King of Sweden. Anyway. One of those S countries. Real nice fireplace. Yeah. Thanks, Davey. I got my information from Riverside Cemetery Journal, Wikipedia, of course, the Discoverer, Listerine.com, uh-huh. and Dictionary of Missouri Biography. Or Missouri, as my dad said. 
As always, we really appreciate you hanging out with us here on the Box of Oddities. Would you maybe do us a favor and share the box with a friend? Tell them about it. Help us grow this podcast. Are you asking people to get their friends into the box? Get your friends into the box. Nice. That's that's catchy. I like that. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>